Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, John Schwab here from Curtain Call, and welcome to episode 95 of the Curtain Call Theater Podcast, the podcast that brings you backstage as close as you possibly can be, often while the shows are actually happening, to meet the people that make theater happen. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, other fine podcast streaming services. If you have a spare 30 seconds, please rate and review our podcast on whichever platform you use to help us be more discoverable to listeners who haven't heard about us yet. Now, for this week's podcast. Sometimes after I sit down and chat with a guest on the podcast, I reflect on the conversation and and think to myself, you know, I've just met a genius. And that is exactly what happened when Matt Humphrey and I sat down to talk with Vicki Mortimer multi-award winning designer and just an all-round fantastic human being and theater professional. Vicky's career is so full and varied. It's definitely one to be envied for anyone considering a career in theater design. And I'm not just talking about theater as we speak about it on a day-to-day basis here at Curtain Call, but any production in a theater. Uh, musicals, drama, dance, opera, ballet, you name it, she has designed it. And, uh, well, let's just list a few of the companies she's worked with. Uh, let's see here. Scottish Opera, Scottish Ballet, English National Opera, Welsh National Opera, Dutch National Opera, Royal Opera House, Royal Theatre Copenhagen, Glyndebourne, Lyric Opera Chicago, Metropolitan Opera. And, and guys, that's just a few of the operas she's uh, worked with. How about, um, let's see, the National Theatre, Chichester Festival Theatre, The Globe, The Almeida, RSC's RST in Stratford, The Barbican, Young Vic, Bush Theatre. On and on, and and not to mention Broadway and uh, and and other theaters around the world. I could go on and on, but you, you really don't want to listen to me. Um, uh, so this week, you know, this is going to be the first part of uh, of an extended interview, and uh, we'll bring you part two later in the year, uh, basically in anticipation of Follies returning to the National. Uh, and, and this week we talked to Vicky about how she got started, the difference of costume and set design, the brilliance of Follies, and how the field of design has changed since uh, she first started. We sat down with her at the National Theater, so there might be some uh, background noise. I think there was uh, maybe a uh, a talk or two happening at the at the National. We were there, so the, the, the foyer was quite crowded, but um, we found a, a, a generally quiet space. But um, uh, this is a fascinating chat. I think you'll agree. Have a listen. Quite like 
sort of beginning. Yeah. Um, okay. And you trained at the Slade School. Arts. I did. Um, um, but when did you decide that that kind of the designing was the right path for you, as it were? I mean, that's it's quite a, a focus, mm. kind of. Um, mm. You know, being an artist in any case is mm. like a is, is is a big commitment. But then going to school, choosing to do it. And I did English literature first. That was my first sort of student experience, and I, which was hugely helpful. And I think text was probably my primary interest at the beginning. Um, but my parents have very three-dimensional design. So my dad was an architect and my mum was a ceramicist. Okay. Is a ceramicist. So uh, there was a lot of... A lot of experience, sort of subconscious mm. experience perhaps, more than sort of literal exposure yeah. to stuff. So we, I lived, for example, in a house... Um, that we moved into when I was four that my dad designed so I lived inside this very conscious design world (laughs) and I also remember really strongly site visits with my dad to existing buildings the company that he worked with the architectural practice in Bristol which is where I grew up were very um, early in adopting picking up old industrial buildings for repurposing. So they were involved, for example, in the Arnolfini development in Bristol. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like an art centre building that used to be a tea, a bonded tea warehouse by the docks in Bristol. And I remember going into that building with Dad when he was having a little look. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, other abandoned buildings. And I think... Would be no surprise to anybody who's seen lots of things that I've done. But that sort of textual narrative that you get in buildings about what the previous use has been and the clues mm-hmm. to the stories of the people who've been there before. So, what buildings and environments can tell you about the human stories inside them, I think that was probably sort of around at that time. I was yeah. a big reader, and so storytelling probably yeah. underpinned my theatre interest and really when I started it as a student of English obviously the most interesting and fun people were the ones that were doing drama mm, so true. I sort of hooked onto the coattails of that but I did at that stage I don't think I felt that confident about my design potential particularly mm. and I, so I did lots of different things I did uh, rudimentary lighting and sound and producing mm. and stage managing and uh, sort yeah. of bits of everything um, on about 40 shows over three years so it was a real wow um, and that was that was, that was that was at Slade no wow. that was before when I was doing an English degree and there were just there were loads of student drama going on so loads right. of opportunities to do that kind of right. thing and I met some really interesting people including Katie who I then hooked up with later um, and in fact stop me when I get really boring no, <laughs> no, this is amazing so basically I did that English thing the English degree didn't really do much academic work but met loads of people and had all those diverse mm. experiences and then I had a year where I just did live drawing and stuff and applied to Motley, do you remember the Motley course? It was this one no. year 
extraordinary design training set up by this extraordinary woman uh, and it was a sort of intense very professionally connected course anyway I applied to that and she turned me down which was really wise of her because <laughs> I really wasn't ready <laughs> but I then did so then I did the two year postgrad right. at the Slade but the great accidental arc of that is that by the time I was finishing at the Slade Katie had done she'd finished her degree and had done lots of interesting travelling and started to want to make her own work done a bit of work paint plow and mm. so by the time I came out with a bit more of a skill base she was making work so we just it was a slipstream thing was, I was really lucky for, for people who don't know who Katie is could you okay so Katie Mitchell was actually one of the very first people I met when I went to university she happened to be in university accommodation right next door to somebody I knew from school so I knocked on his door. <laughs> he wasn't in, and this really nosy woman next door opened the door and said, who are you? And it was Katie, and that's classic Katie, because she's got such a sort of appetite <laughs> for meeting and interesting. Anyway, so she and I... She was the most extraordinary peer collaborator for me when I was first working in theatre. And she had a kind of... Um, an international grasp of work being made at the time so that was 1986 when we left um, but I didn't know anybody else who knew anything about Pina Bausch uh, Lev Dodin she, you know, she just knew all this stuff I don't know how she got there but she was so sophisticated <laughs> in what she was referring to, that it was like a kind of tornado of doors opening and ideas. Yeah. And and luckily she invited me to work with her and we then worked together on dozens of projects. And retrospectively I now really appreciate the fact that I had a peer group collaboration like mm. that. Cause much more commonly, young designers were then paired with much older established directors. But she and I had the chance to really develop as develop collaborators together. together yeah. yeah, and that was just luck. But did you did you start out as set designing, or and that's such a broad mm. question, mm. or costume designing? Sorry, for <coughs> broad question. But I Not think at all. I, I think it's a. The thing is, training in Britain is unusual, which is that the assumption is that you will do both. Okay. And that's not true pretty much anywhere else in the world. Mm. But in the UK, that's been true for as long as I know. Um, apart from in opera yeah. or, or ballet. But certainly in terms of spoken word theatre, the assumption is that everybody does both. Um, and I love doing both bits. Mm. However, I can also see that there are... You know, I think, that of course, there's a hierarchy which I think is wrong, but there, there is a sort of assumption that costume design is lower down the heart, it's less well-paid, you know, and mm. I just don't get it. Mm. And in America, you know, it was a real lesson when I first went out there taking a show to Broadway, mm. meeting American costume designers and the kind of status and, yeah. hmm. you know, empowerment that they exhibited was a real... 
it was a culture shock. But of course, there is no reason why one should be. It's, I'm afraid, it is largely a patriarchal right. <laughs> issue. <laughs> Men do sets, women do costumes. We are not going to play them as well. I, I think you know, but that's changing though too. But I think um, I I really like the fact that you just do both. Mm-hmm. You just get on with both because. I love the range of skills that's needed. I love the range of craftspeople that you get to work with. Therefore, you know, Foyce is a fabulous example of that. Extraordinary craftsmen from carpentry on the one end of mm. the spectrum and people who do hot stoning on the other, mm. arguably, you know, the tininess of one and the largeness yeah. of the other. And I mean, if you were only doing one bit of that, you, I mean, it's, it feels... A shame. Yeah. You've been missing out. Yeah, yeah. you've been yeah. missing out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just following on, you mentioned opera and ballet, yeah. and, and um, you know, when you were training, was was the the scope of what you were about to kind of launch yourself into in the world of you know live performance, or whatever? Mm. Was there any focus on, on on one of the disciplines? Because you have done yeah. opera, you've done theater, you've done dance, you dabble in film. You know, there's there's you know. Um, I don't think there really was. No, I think that, again, there's this sort of assumption that if you were a jobbing designer, you'd just have to turn your hand mm. to whatever came up. I think possibly the exception was ballet. Right. I think there was a bit more of a sense that ballet was a specialist, particularly ballet costume, mm. sort of specialist area. But actually my experience of working in ballet hasn't really borne that out you know I think everything every project you do requires specialist Mm. skills that's one of the delights of it is that no two projects are the same and you're constantly discovering things that you don't know anything about or don't know how to do which is good I suppose it's the same as with any kind of creative anything that we do um Mm. You know, it's a silly question. It's a silly question to ask because if somebody says, "Would you like to do this, John?" as an actor, I kind of I consider it go yes. You know, it's any. It doesn't matter if it's a radio yeah. play or you know anything mm. else. It's always something new. Yeah, um, I get that. But so, yeah, and Matt, you know, what you get to do with your portraiture or you know how that, you apply yeah. what you can do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think my uh, uh, you know originally it was very much spoken word that I was drawn to I don't think I you know I'd never mm. really been to the opera yeah it was all a bit of a bit remote <laughs> I mean contemporary dance yeah but not ballet yeah. I've never been to a ballet but opera is so okay uh, this is for somebody who's seen a f- like tiny bits like mm. not even a full opera so I can't say but going into the to opera the opera house for say the Olivier's or you know mm. or when we went to Bad Out of Hell or something it's so big but watching opera on video it's huge mm. so what was your first experience of, of walking into a, a design mm. <laughs> going okay I'm going to design this yeah. I think uh, well actually my first opera design proper opera design wasn't for an opera house as such it was for the tramway in Glasgow and Scottish opera were doing a site specific ish production so that was a sort of soft entry, I think. But it was still... I think the... The sort of... 
administrative container, if you like, or the sort of cultural container mm. for opera is really yeah. totally different world. Mm. And some of the, um, the practical aspects of that that really affect design are speak volumes about other bits of the psychology of opera. So, for example, there's all there's a lot of mythology about the sounds a bit boring, but the design deadlines for presenting a project in opera are way earlier than they are for theatre. So opera might expect you to be presenting a design at least 18 months before you start rehearsal. Wow. That's, that's <coughs> a big lead in time. Yeah, that's it's a really big lead time. And, and theatre, traditionally at least, has been it's probably more like eight months, six months, you know, for a big show. Beforehand, and studio shows can be really much, much shorter mm, yeah. than that. And so the the kind of speed of the speed of action, the the speed of the environment, cultural environment, creative environment, is much, much faster in theatre than it is in opera. The the amount of time that you have to sustain an arc of creativity for is so long with opera that I mm. think that's a really different discipline. And and actually, the the weight of the machinery underpinning opera is equally kind of massive and yeah. Um, and <laughs> so it means that you can, by the time you're going into rehearsal, you know everything's a bit. You've got new computers, you know, <laughs> outdated technology, something like that. Um, um, so you know, it just means that all the associated thinking tends to be much uh, more steadily paced yeah. as well so it's more that in a way not okay. so much the scale of the yeah. thing it, it's it's more you know what you're trying to yeah. move forward that's really interesting because aside from the kind of the political or scheduled aspects of the containers you talk about what about the, the physical space as well mm. how much does that influence the design and you know, in terms of going into a huge opera house or a site-specific piece or the mm. Olivier stage here, for example, because mm. presumably it's quite a big element to it. Yeah. It? I mean, just to talk about Follies for a moment, it's quite a good example, I mm. think, because, uh, like many things, obviously, Follies was written originally with the idea of a framed performance space, mm. so a proscenium space, so looking through something at something. Mm. Um, and that uh, within that for fully specifically it draws on a historical memory of that mm. style of theatre making in that style of theatre presentation so then when the idea came forward that we would be doing it in an arena space like this um, that's a really interesting part of the narrative and it sort of turns the puzzle round, gives you a completely different starting point. So you yeah. say, okay, so what happens if you pull that stuff out from behind the frame mm. and you start to fragment it? Yeah. And you know, it's really exciting yeah. then. So I would say that the the space it's in is a is one of the main components when you first start a project, but not in, not so much in a um, sort of in a, I don't know, pure design sense or an architectural sense, but more what does this space do to the piece that we're doing? Um, 
and what does it do to the audience's access mm. to the, you know and that that can include things even like how how does a person get from the tube to the performance space you know mm. if you're fi- if you're working yeah. in a more of an installed environment yeah but even here you know you sort of all of this makes a difference to how people arrive yeah. in their seat. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. That's a question I have. For you. <laughs> um, the uh, the difference between um, do, you talked about each approach when it comes to kind of opera mm. or the, you know in spaces, which but it's what I'd like to also know about and be interesting to hear is the 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 difference the, the approach between the set design and the costume design separately or the design of a piece you know of the whole is there a different approach to set and costume and mm-hmm. if so what is it mm-hmm. or is there is there an overarching kind of approach um, to, to any piece it's really interesting trying to think of you know stand back mm-hmm. from the process which is I can't say it's unconscious but it's it's sort of so integrated it's really difficult to sort of work out really what happens and I think there's probably a variation from project to project but essentially what I would say if I'm doing both ingredients is that they're really symbiotic so it it does tend to be there are some projects which are very led by costume um, and it might be that Follies is one mm-hmm. of those potentially Um but it's not necessarily led by costume because it's a costumey show. Sometimes it can just be the way into a project. Mm. Um, trying to think of whether there's another. Well, Thrupney was a bit like that here, and Votsek that was an opera piece that I did in Chicago mm-hmm. was a bit like that because it's such a Weimari. You know, it's so much written in the aftermath of World War One, and so the impact on the bodies is very important. Um, but I think that um, I have become more, partly by working with very um, extraordinary costume designers. So Moritz is one, Nikki Gillibrand is another, uh, and being around people for whom that is really a specialist area and who are remarkable in the way that they think their way through a project. And has I have stood back and just been so intrigued and impressed and inspired by seeing how they go about their work and that has definitely fed in and given me much more kind of of a of a core respect for the role of costume and so I think I am probably more conscious of it now so there's a bit more mm. so things like tone obviously uh, and color and and what the subliminal um, narrative that costumes can provide beyond a sort of descriptive a pure descriptive task you know because costumes tell you lots about the character potentially but equally you know you're dressed in such a way that I could put the same clothes on somebody else and they're not telling me everything about you and they're not telling they're and they're very transferable to somebody else as are any Mm. elements of clothing so it's sort of how how you um how you talk about clothing and identity in a, in a much more sort of latent and subtle way for some shows and then for other shows it's very much about presenting a mask or, or 
allegiance to a tribe. You know, there mm. it's such a brilliant area. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think I would say more or less the broad answer to your question is that they they evolve very simultaneously. Is part of, and which is why I find it quite difficult to separate the two. Yeah, and presumably there's a there's a chance or a challenge that you could be kind of caught out by the other element of the design that you don't have the control over mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, it I goes in a direction that you don't think mm. you, you, were, you wouldn't have taken it in. Well, that's a really good... That is a really good... consideration, because I think what happens when I'm working... I think mostly I have done set with somebody else doing costume. A couple of times I've done just costume. But so, for example, when I'm the set designer on a project, um, it's such a brilliant chance to have another designer around. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> so often you are the only one. And actually, it's the design community are fabulous here and really, really supportive and full of mutual respect. And so actually... It's, I mean, it is amazingly, at least on the surface, mm. <laughs> non-competitive mm. community of brilliant people. And so I think I tend to be super respectful of the other designer on the project to the extent that I actually sort of want to just give them the area mm. that they're looking after and respond to it. Most. Mm. It's a bit more like having another director almost mm-hmm. on the project. So... Yeah, then you take the risk that actually that something shows up on stage that you really, really wouldn't have thought was going to happen. Mm. But I do think that's part of the deal. Yeah, you, know, you have to give that other person their independence. And that, um, sorry to jump oh, in again, but that, that sense of um, collaboration between the designers mm. and stepping outside of your set and cost um, discipline. Mm. How does it? How do you like to work, and how does it work with? For example, the lighting designer, mm. which I, I presume is the, the kind of closest collaborator for you on a design perspective. Mm. Uh, I mean, lighting, when I was starting working as a designer, I think lighting was something that I just didn't, yeah, I had no experience really of working with lighting designers. So I, what I did know is they could rescue a shit design and they could <laughs> destroy a good design. Um, and so actually it was really important uh, who that person was. But the more work I've done, I think the more I imagine lighting into the design as I go along. Um, not, in a how, not in a how to do it way, but more in a kind of what to do way. Mm. And so I mean, I, one of the great advantages of working with a friend like Paulie is that it's a very natural part of a conversation it just Mm. feels um, unforced and just really um, comfortable in the steps through the process Um, and working with her has really taught me lots of uh, triggers where moments where I I just sort of log it and think oh that's that's something that I need to talk to the design (coughs) designer about so even when she's not on a project I'll working relationship certainly informs my thinking about that but there are a lot of really 
brilliantly collaborative lighting designers around now and I think practice has shifted a lot you know, there's, a, there's a lot more inclusion of lighting ingredients sort of inside the mm-hmm. physical fabric gotcha. of a design yeah. that's much more commonplace mm. now so it's not just top it's, it's not, not just, just from, from outside, outside. Mm-hmm. yeah and I think because it used to be when I was starting it used to be very much external mm. unless you had a table light yeah. mm. or you know that it was just a few practicals whereas mm. now there's much more of an exploration of you know how does it affect the character of mm. you know, lighting has become a character yeah. in its own right much more and so yeah it's a different dialogue yeah. now and I think reference points are more associative and much less sort of practical they're much they're mu- Lighting is talked about much less in terms of lighting, I think, than it was when I first started. Right. You know, that you talk about lighting using many other different terms of reference. So the great advantage of that is it's, it is much more integrated mm. into the other design ingredients, I think. And that's the expectation, not the exception. Vicki Mortimer, opera, dance, ballet, and theater designer extraordinaire. Now, uh, well, and she also dabbles in film. Uh, before we wrap up, if you are a theater professional, you need to head on over to curtaincallonline.com and sign up for a free profile page. All you have to do is create an account with an email address, make up a cool password, a cool, cool, cool password, and away you go. You can follow us on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, that'll be at Curtain Call. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast. Uh, get in touch with us via any of the social media platforms I just mentioned or write to me at john at curtaincallonline.com. And like I said, please rate review this podcast wherever you can. It just leaves me to say a big old thank you to Vicki Mortimer for the amount of time she gave Matt and I uh, in this chat. I mean, I, we know how she, busy she is. She's She's busy, people. She's busy. And we are thoroughly grateful for the opportunity to sit down with her and chat about all things design. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Curtain Call Theater Podcast, and I will catch you all next week. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.